0: The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.
1: Astrology reveals insights into the greater world, its changing cycles, and universal forces. Through the lens of astrology, we examine special topics and current events, investigate their meaning, and discuss solutions to personal and global problems. Welcome to Astrology, the Theory of Everything, with Mary Jo Weavers and Janie McCarthy. We're here to show you how astrology can be a powerful tool for self-awareness and transformation. You'll be amazed how everything is interconnected when using astrology. Now, here are your hosts, Mary Jo and Janie.
0: Welcome. This is Janie McCarthy. I'm here with my co-host, Mary Jo Weavers, and two very special guests, Eric Francis and Christine Payne Towler. Hello, Janie. I'm excited to hear from our guests today. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, Mary Jo, what I thought we would do is I'll begin by introducing Eric and then turn the show over to you to introduce Christine. We'll get the conversation going on our show topic today, which is the history of astrology. And for our listeners, I can guarantee you this is not going to be a dry history lesson, but not with these two dynamic personalities on board. So, welcome, Eric.
2: Thank you. Hi there. Nice to be on your program.
0: Terrific. Let's see. Uh, If I go back four years ago, I had the good fortune of being introduced to your website, planetwaves.net, which you are the founder, editor, and publisher of, and also the host of Planet Waves FM broadcast. So. What really impressed me and what also differentiated your writing among the other astrology websites that I'd been on is the fine point, the details, and the fact-checked accuracy that you use in reporting um, all kinds of both personal as well as global issues, and then how you wrap it in an astrology symbolic framework. That's the coolest, absolutely the coolest thing. And the way you also juxtapose what's going on in people's personal lives and how it's connected to global affairs. Um, I, and, and the other thing I wanted to make sure that I said is that your site has actually become a go-to source for me for news. You've got, you've got details on news stories I do not see or read on uh, television, <laughs> radio, Magazines, newspapers, it's not to be found. And I didn't get how that was possible until I read your bio. You've spent 10 years in uh, as a career investigative reported, and boy, does that show. You've written in United States, UK, and Australian journals and on websites. And also on your website, um, your photography, your photojournalism is... Displayed, which is very beautiful. So, um, well, just a I little like bit to think of, of
2: this is the next generation of news reporting.
0: Well, it adds a level of personalization that certainly the public news never touches.
2: Yeah, isn't that the amazing thing? I, I often look through, for example, the pages of the New York Times and wonder. How anyone gets any personal relevance from reading that form of journalism?
0: I think mm. we're on our own. Mm-hmm. So, yes, our, right. our paths personally. Please continue. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say our paths personally crossed a couple times. I did have you do a personal reading for me as well as the chart for the launch of the show, which was. Fantastic, and um, you do a end of year edition, and I was honored to be chosen to publish one of my articles in that. So, it's been great. the The connection we've had so far has been really great.
2: Awesome. Well, thanks for participating and for having me on. So, what do you want to talk about? Hmm.
3: Well, um, thank you, Eric and and Janie, and I'd like to jump in right now and take this opportunity to introduce Christine Payne-Towler, who's with us as well. Christine, I had the pleasure of meeting you last fall at an Astrology and Tarot Salon here in Oregon, and I was impressed with what a true scholar and fascinating teacher of the history of astrology and tarot you are. You describe yourself as an antiquarian, which I would say is someone who has immersed herself in the ancient esoteric arts and sciences to such a degree and depth that you have a unique understanding of their origins and how they were practiced. Uh, You are the author of The Underground Stream, Esoteric Tarot Unveiled. Which is a book on the history and deeper meanings of tarot decks and cards. And um, very recently, you have a new tarot deck and accompanying pair of books titled Tarot of the Holy Light, A Continental Esoteric Tarot, and Foundations of the Esoteric Tradition. So thank you, Christine, for joining us today.
4: Oh, I'm, it's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad to have been invited.
3: Wonderful. Well, um, Christine, I'm going to jump in here right now and ask you, how did you first become interested in the esoteric arts? What drew you to them?
4: You know, I knew nothing. I was a freshman in college uh, at a little town in Oregon, and I was looking for Christmas presents. And I went to a used bookstore because I'm from a book family, and due to uh Trick of the light, or something, my eye fell on a deck and the cards, uh, the words rose up off the box and smote me in the eye. And so I bought that deck and a couple of books that went with it and took it home. And uh, the rest was history, really. <laughs> I stayed in school, but uh, really by m- my mid 20s, I was working, reading uh, Tarot and astrology
0: and never looked back. Eric, what was your entrance into astrology from the investigative journalism you were doing?
2: Well, I'd known about astrology for a while, but I had never figured out the relevance. I couldn't see the relevance. then at some point, someone suggested that I read the New York Post horoscope by Patrick Walker, who's... uh, guy who uh, lived in England and in Greece and I started reading this daily horoscope in the New York Post and it was one of the most exciting reading experiences of my life because in this little 60 word daily horoscope packed onto the comic page you know with the jumbled puzzle and family circus uh, there was some of the most a profound wisdom I had ever read. Uh, And I, you know, I had come from a long background of studying religion and the world and all that. And so I read his column for a couple of years. And then finally on my 30th birthday, uh, I decided I couldn't stand it anymore. And I knew enough about (laughs) astrology to know there was this thing called the ephemeris. So I, I went over to a bookstore in New Paltz and bought a copy of the, Rosicrucian Ephemeris, and for the next couple of months, I basically decoded the Patrick Walker horoscope every day, looking up the positions of the planets, and uh, and that got me in. Uh, so I, I went in trying to figure out how it was possible that he actually could do this, because really it's not supposed to be possible to be that relevant to people you don't know, 3, four thousand miles away and uh, you know what how, how is this done and so uh, that got me in and I started reading books and um, meeting people and after about a year I just decided to write my own horoscope column and so that was my
4: point of entry
0: it really does bring the newspaper. Sherlock <laughs> sounds like
4: a trial by fire to put yourself out that quickly but both you and I did that. Uh, What a wonderful way to learn.
2: Yeah, it was fun. I mean, and it, you know, there's always been a connection between newspapers and astrology. The first astrologer I met was the editor of the newspaper I worked at in my first job out of college as a reporter. And there was no astrology in the newspaper, but there was a lot of astrology in the newspaper office because we worked with an astrologer all day. And, of course, we never mentioned astrology in this gritty Republican town newspaper, but it was the talk of the office and we, we all had it, you know, inflicted on us. And so by the time I picked up the column, I already knew a little bit, but not that much. Like I say, I knew what an ephemera this was. Mm. Um, and so there's this double newspaper connection, right? Because the first place I really learn astrology is in a newspaper office. And then the second place where I figure it out is from newspaper, itself And then I turned uh, an astrology web to a news website. so there's this kind of interesting connection between astrology and the news that uh, you know happy to be camped out here and, and exploring.
4: Yeah, it sounds like you have uh, you've had your fingers on the collective zeitgeist and watching astrology that way, where I'm going backwards you, in time and looking at astrology with that thousand-year stare. It's so interesting because it's the same art, but there are so many applications. And then you spread that across all the different cultures and ages. What a huge monument to human learning. Uh, Mm. It's awesome. Mm. Uh, Christine, that's, that's... true.
3: Great. Christine, let's explore that for a moment here, if we can change the subject a little bit. In your YouTube videos, The Thin Spindle of Necessity, you tell us that all of the world's astrologies come from a few foundational ideas. What are these origins of astrology? Can you tell us about those?
4: Yeah, I'm going to be really brief. I made some nice notes from Nicholas Campion's book, The Great Year because that's an excellent place to get this historical perspective. Uh, Basically, our understanding of astrology, including the ephemeris, the method of charting, and the method of notation that they used, uh, it's all Mesopotamian. That is, uh, they spent several thousand years laying down observational records over long periods of time, and about... Eight, the 8th century B.C., they finally had collated enough records and uh, developed a, a great enough database that they'd also created a class of political analysts to uh, organize this stuff and make it relevant to the leaders, you know, in the Tarot, just to think that way. You see the emperor as number four, you see the hierophant as number five. The astrologer is the hierophant. He stands behind the throne. That's the power behind the throne. Um, Mm -hmm. All astrologers uh, since the Mesopotamian era have been organized into guilds partially so that they could learn the mathematics and and, uh, have access to the historical records, but also... uh, as a franchise, you know, to keep certain people out as much as to keep certain people in. So all the temple cultures had uh, these special people that would get winnowed out of the village situation and brought up if they showed mathematical ability and drawn into the priesthood in one function or another to operate this system that... Official history tells us we learned through observation. So that's the Mesopotamian contribution is the 2,000 years of observation at the baseline here of activities, especially because they had such fears of floods and uh, catastrophic events. Uh, mm-hmm. Then the Egyptians contributed the sexagesimal math, and uh, they had a wonderful uh, approach to their world that uh, connected to the hermetic axiom as above so below so they developed the science of it, it to a very high degree and created a civilization that was built on uh, the energy grid the grid of heaven being projected down onto the earth so that your map on the earth matches the map you see in the sky and so that the rituals uh, of the people below are living through what the planets are working out above our heads. Basically, they all believed, uh, all the theocratic societies understood that politics is a means of manipulating the future through this understanding of what has happened in the past and the analysis of how to uh, predict what could happen in the future. So from the beginning, it turns out, Politics is a priestly art based on magically controlling how we understand the future. So all of that has to do with astrology for kings and courts and uh, city-states and ancient nations. Okay? It doesn't come down to the human level one-to-one until we get to the Greek contribution, which is the houses, the horoscopy now suddenly we're using somebody's birth time, an individual person, not a group entity. Oh, excuse me. So when uh, when we get to that point, then we can suddenly pinpoint what's happening to a person individually and how they can react to their own stars, their own internal climate, because they have their chart in front of them and uh, uh, suddenly you're like the king in your own castle, and the horoscope circle is your castle. So mm. these are the three civilizations that built astrology for us in this era of history that we can know. The Mesopotamians first, the Egyptians, and then the Greeks.
3: Mm. And Christine, these form the foundations for what we, we call Western astrology. Uh, what about... Uh, the astrologies around different other parts of the world in different cultures. Uh, do you? I know that you're a specialist in the Western astrological arts. Uh, do you think that this was going on in other cultures as well?
4: well yeah, I was actually um, edified on this topic uh, by a, an old friend who was a his uh, religious researcher. But what he said was. And I've, I've seen it, to be true, since the ephemeris, when it, it left the Mesopotamian civilization and started traveling east and west on the Silk Road, and started uh, being a tool for navigation, obviously. It's very mm. important, navigation. And the Venetian civilization, which was uh, later in the sequence, but still speaking those Semitic-based languages, they were a seafaring nation because they had almost no land, so they established all the fine-tuning rules for the sound value of the alphabet. As I said, the Mesopotamians or the Babylonians originated this uh, alphabet of letters and numbers, but the Phoenicians drew it out into uh, connected it up to a language base, and so put the phonics on it, right? Mm. Uh, Phonics are Venetian.
3: Mm
4: -hmm. So when you get now uh, these number letters, of which there are 22, correlated with the sound value of language, then suddenly that alphabet can go wherever there are speakers of any language. This was an incredible radical breakthrough in uh, intercultural communication was to actually Whittle down all the sounds of speech into a 22 alphabet set and then fit them to the signs, planets, and elements. So, as the Phoenicians traveled around the world and did their seafaring and their trading, they took the ephemeris with them. And scholars of culture can now see when uh, different civilizations became mathematically literate. Because suddenly, boom, the ephemeris pops up. Suddenly, boom, solar astrology appears in a new civilization. And uh, even though some of them are incredibly different, each different civilization will interpret that zodiac wheel of 360 degrees and 12 signs and the movements of the visible planets. Each one will interpret that According to their own mythology and their own cultural life, But uh, anywhere where you have the consensus of a 360 degree uh, wheel, that's the signature of Babylonian astrology and the Egyptian sexagesimal mass. So it doesn't just, it can't just spring up like weeds in a new civilization. Even the Mesopotamians, the, the Babylonian. Temple culture took them 2,000 years to get enough records together to have some predictive value and to create the ephemeris, this uh, table of planetary motion. So it's not something that springs up spontaneously unless it's dumped on you by an exogenous civilization. So the way that a civilization is judged once they get the ephemeris is how long it takes them to correct the Babylonian errors. That tells you, you know, how fast that civilization g- grows mathematical thinkers. They That's get the ephemeris and then uh, then they learn math.
3: Yeah. Fascinating that there is this, this common thread that, that we all experience globally that had such a, a huge influence. Well What's we're it? going we're going to take a short break now. And when we come back, we will be continuing our conversation with Christine Payne-Towler and Eric Francis with more about astrology in ancient and modern times.
0: The Voice America 7th Wave Channel
1: Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com mary joe weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration a certified karmic astrologer mary joe uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective mary joe can help you gain clarity about your life purpose relationship dynamics and how to live your life more effectively she is available for astrological consultations in person by phone and skype check out her website at www.maryjoeweavers.com be
0: visionary be extraordinary be the change this is the seventh wave channel on the voice america network
1: Listening To Astrology, the theory of everything. To reach the hosts or the guests today, please call 1 472 5795. Again, that's 1 472 5795. You may also send an email to AstroTalkRadio at iCloud.com. Now, back to the show.
3: Welcome back. This is Mary Jo Weavers with co-host Janie McCarthy and our guests Christine Payne-Towler and Eric Francis. We've been discussing the history of astrology, how it has evolved over the millennia from its very ancient foundations.
0: What I wanted to do is uh, transition uh, over to the uh, more modern experience of astrology and ask Eric, we've been talking with Christine about the spread of ancient astrology across the world. The transition of this body of knowledge into the modern era where there have been so many new branches that have evolved, humanistic, Jungian, spiritual, evolutionary, intuitive. So many have emerged in the modern era is do you believe that they have, um, they've evolved because of advancements in science or growing interest in human psychology or possibly even the introduction of philosophical ideas that relate to uh, consciousness journeys?
2: Probably the printing press more than anything. Because the printing press makes the literature available widely. And so whenever you have a body of knowledge that then gets distributed to a large population or many populations, they're going to reinterpret it. Just like in the ancient world, when the chart reaches someplace, they come up with their own ideas. Um, Here we have a kind of implosion caused by the printing press, and uh, and the books become available to more and more people. Now, the, the, the history of consciousness is evolving along with this, right? The psychological era, you know, the era of psychiatry and psychology happens in, I guess, maybe like the late 19th century, that starts to emerge as a distinct thing. And so it is naturally colored by the culture in which it exists. And there's um, often strong cultural influence on, on any astrology. You know, astrology is the product of a culture as we experience it.
0: That makes all kinds of sense. hmm
2: Yeah. You know, it's all this is all conveyed by media. Everything that we're talking about, whether it's Phoenicians sailing around the world, uh, giving out the ephemeris, and who knows what format it was written, um, you know, shipped onto stones or, or scrolls or who knows, Yeah, right?
4: we have some old copies. It was literally in a square grid. Using cuneiform writing and uh, the 22-letter alphabet that was invented for the purpose.
2: Hmm. The, when you say 22 letters, do you mean the astrological glyphs, or do you mean the phonics? Pho- you said phonics. I mean, you said it was a pronu- yeah, pronunciation. Yeah, the
4: Phoenicians are the ones who 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 nailed the sound, although I think that probably was as strengthened by the Greek uh, Pythagorean because that's all sonic-based too, but um, yeah, the letters were originally numbers and uh, uh, planets, signs, and celestial elements. So it's the three, seven, twelve pattern that you find on the Kabbalah tree. Three mother letters that are the celestial elements, seven letters that are the planets, twelve letters that are the signs. So that comes to us inherent in the, um, in the actual style of writing. So, these original, any magical alphabet or any, 20, any of these uh, fundamental alphabets from antiquity are simultaneously sounds, numbers in a 22 point sequence, uh, and those have decimal ranges inside of them, and astronomical. So, if somebody who doesn't know Phoenician looks at the ephemeris, They don't know how to translate those widgets. How to translate whether to read them as words, whether to read them as mathematical equations, you know, whether to read them as astronomy. And so, having three different vocabularies, uh, three different scales of meaning, locked into one alphabet, is what makes it magical. It's it's inherently self coding. So this is why you find magical alphabets all you know running through every stage of at least Western esotericism. this And the 22-letter alphabet went all the way into Sanskrit. It connects with the original 22 Druidic runes. It's, uh, it's all over the world.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm. Right, so again, in a way, a function of media. Right, the yeah, ideas are contained absolutely. and transmitted through Three rules. media, shaped by it and, uh, and conveyed by it. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty interesting. And
4: our, our minds are shaped by it, because we, without that ephemeris going around the world, who was going to invent the spreadsheet?
2: Uh, right. That's, that's, the key. that's the key invention. As is and the alphabet. Planets are. The alphabet to fill it and with,
4: it, which is both I mean, letters, of, and words, and,
2: yeah. And a lot of mathematics, too, obviously. I mean, you have to be able to predict when the eclipse is going to happen.
4: Well, that's what the ephemeris well, does. I mean, that's the thing. Yep. Once they got to the place where they could notate, they could, you know, you can time travel once you can read the ephemeris. As you immediately said uh, when you were confessing your history, uh, astrologers love <laughs> to go forward and backwards in time. And the ephemeris is just like uh, Hecate's Porphyry Pillar. It allows you to move through the three worlds.
2: Yes, but you have it to know how to work. a time it. travel tool.
3: -hmm Christine, um, it's fascinating to to really delve into the, the numerology of astrology and the sacred geometry and I'm thinking also of some of the other uh, foundations, the the elements, for example. and uh, I was wondering if you could speak to the importance of um, <clears throat> what we know as the four elements and why they were important as as a foundation for astrology. And I'm also thinking in modern times too. With as Janie and Eric were talking about the more recent uh, practices of of astrology, uh, especially in psychology, tie in the use of elements.
4: Well, you know. The use of elements is partially a shorthand way of talking about the four seasons or the quadrature of the circle, which is also the four stages of the day, the four stages of human life, you know, from a small scale to a large scale, the four stages of the moon, uh, each of its cycles. These are different analogies that link into this idea of four and fourness. Um, if you're trying to think about time, it circles around itself, time is round just the way the orbit of the planets around the sun is round, but it never comes back to the exact same place. It's a coil, you know, like a long slinky. So, the question was how to picture this to ourselves in a way that doesn't confuse us, uh, but, uh you know so i think really this has been the dilemma of both revealing and teaching astrology and concealing and hiding astrology is the the how so much symbolism gets condensed down into the numbers and as you said it's the geometry that is the link i call this aspect of the ancient mysteries architectonic because it's not just about things that go on on the flat plane, uh, like like what an astrological chart looks like. It's just a snapshot or a slide taken out of the middle of the caterpillar. You don't see the motion. So once you turn your mind on to the realization that everything you're looking at is moving and that each item in the chart is like another hand on a cosmic clock... And the person whose chart you're analyzing, they're like a little planet with its own weather and its own astral constitution and stuff, and around it are going the planets in the heavens. You know, what's going on now, this very second, is impacting that person's chart. There's all this communication going macro, micro, uh, back and forth, and that person is experiencing, you know, this intersection between their inner climate and their outer climate. This is the classic theory of um, uh, Renaissance medicine, was that the individual has their own four seasons and their own rhythm and their own way of doing the cycle, the four, the quadrature of their own personal circle. And meanwhile, they have to live inside, you know, this this grand animal that we are, we all co-occupy, called the mm-hmm. earth, and it has its own trends and energies. So the four elements were a way of talking about climates or temperaments or internal and external qualities that affect us through our own constitution and through whatever is happening astrally around us.
0: Mm-hmm. Eric, relative to yes. the four elements, and being a photojournalist, um, I'm wondering what you visualize, what you see, um, how the whole chart comes up in your mind when you're looking at it in terms of its elements?
2: Hmm. Well, uh, I I guess I do that layer of analysis sometimes where there appears to be uh, an imbalance, but like a, like most modern astrologers, I'm predominantly a psychological astrologer uh, because astrology is given way from the, um, you know, the scared and, and, uh, a thing used to guide all of society, and now it's taken up its fully kind of microcosmic place, and uh, the larger society hardly considers astrology, and when astrology is used, it's more typically used in the individual level, on the individual level um, for personal understanding. Um, so I guess if you look at the elements also as relating to the seasons and the quadrants and the types of signs... Um, that uh, that's that's an important layer of analysis. Though I am more of a uh, listen to the client and see where it fits the chart type of astrologer, more than look at the chart and see where I can impose that on or or demonstrate that to the client type of chart uh, reader. So I'm I'm really listening to the uh, to the client more than anything, and then mapping out the chart based on what they say, their experiences, and their journey through time. Now, this is a typically modern method. I just have my own ways of doing it. And, um, you know, we can talk about how this evolves out of the theosophical movement in the late uh, 19th century, which I think that it does. Um, Are are you interested in going there, or do you want to follow up on something I've said?
0: No, absolutely. Please do.
2: Well, it seems like uh, around the time the first astrology textbook is written in English and published in 1647 by William Lilly, called Christian Astrology, um, astrology seems to be used for e- equally for divination in, in the form of horary astrology, and then to some extent it's used for natal analysis. Though so, that has a more fatalistic thing, you know, will you marry a rich woman? How long will you live? Um, You know, this kind of question. So the natal astrology is really being used to basically make predictions. And then in parallel to that is horary astrology, where you're coming to the astrologer with a question, for example, someone, you know, stole all of my fish. Where are the fish? It's a famous case from the 17th century. Um, And... From there, it seems as if, uh, as the age of science begins uh, in the 18th century, astrology goes into decline, and and it's, um, you know, it's it's preserved uh, in India. It's preserved to some extent in England, but in American society, it goes into a, a kind of a decline uh, in visibility and use. Despite the fact that, you know, Benjamin Franklin published his astrology in poor Richard's Almanac, and it was commingled with the, you know, dates the courts open and things like this. But it's taken less seriously as science uh, becomes the predominant uh, mental and spiritual language of the culture. And it doesn't seem to make a reemergence until the 19th century, uh, when, the the- when the theosophical movement um, kind of brings it back out and dusts it off as, a, uh, as an individual spiritual tool and a kind of a, a method for personal evolution. That seems to be the theme. And so it's born first in contemporary culture as a spiritual tool, and then it seems to evolve pretty rapidly into a psychological tool because psychology is, become, is the milieu in which the spiritualism emerges in the late 19th century. So, you know, you have some of your psychological theorists already at work, and psychiatry has been invented, and there's some uh, some concepts, and then it seems to blend um, with a kind of psychology movement, and so after the spiritualist, um, you know, phase, uh, the, the you know the theosophical phase, uh, you have. Ah, uh, contact between, for example, Alice Bailey and Dane Rudyard, and so Bailey is coming, you know, straight from the Theosophical School. Uh, before her, Blavatsky is making some references, which Bailey quotes. But it, I believe it's these people, though this, that astrology is uh, is considered apocryphal by modern astrology historians. Uh, you know, for example. Esoteric astrology by uh, Alice Bailey is not considered; it's considered an ap- apocryphal work, despite the wisdom it contains. But that uh, that kind of um, fermentation tank, where the spiritualists were kind of commingling with who be- people who became the humanists, um, leads to the birth of twentieth-century astrology as a growth tool, as a personal. Growth tool. Now, by this time, printing is available, and uh, and books are coming out in affordable editions, hardcover and, and softcover editions are coming out, and um, then comes a proliferation of all these tools in the 1960s. Now, in American culture, it's Evangeline Adams, I think, who is the most responsible for popularizing astrology as a Kind of a mass market tool, Uh, you know. Rudyard is writing books at the time. He, I believe, writes the first American horoscope column. uh, But it's Adams who turns astrology into really a pop phenomenon.
0: Uh, Eric, radio, yes. Please finish your sentence. (laughs) Uh, She,
2: Adams, invents the astrological career that we all live now. That we astrologers practicing today. That job, being on the radio, writing horoscopes, teaching Thursday night classes, writing books and articles, that gig was invented by Evangeline Adams in the 1930s.
0: That's where I would love you to pick up when we come back from break. Excellent. And for those people that are going to be listening on demand... You can feel free to send your comments and questions by email to astrotalkradio at icloud.com. We'll be right back. The 7th Wave Channel on The Voice America Network.
1: Mary Jo Weavers is a licensed spiritual health coach specializing in soul personality integration. A certified karmic astrologer, Mary Jo uses the symbolic language of astrology to help her clients understand themselves and their life experiences from a deeper spiritual perspective. Mary Jo can help you gain clarity about your life purpose, relationship dynamics, and how to live your life more effectively. She is available for astrological consultations in person, by phone, and Skype. Check out her website at www.maryjoeweavers.com. Janie McCarthy loves being a professional astrologer. Her academic pursuits in consciousness exploration, negotiations, and relationship transformation have been critical to helping her clients integrate their material and spiritual worlds. She is known for her ability to simplify and articulate even the most complex concepts to trigger aha moments of pure, meaningful, and lasting clarity. Janie is available for booking presentations, workshops, and client consultations and can be contacted at www.janiemccarthy.com.
0: The Voice America Seventh Wave Channel Seek greater awareness.
1: listening to astrology the theory of everything to reach the hosts or the guests today please call 1-866-472-5795 again that's 1-866-472-5795 you may also send an email to astrotalkradio at icloud.com now back to the show
0: Welcome back, everyone. I'm Janie McCarthy. I'm here with my co-host and friend, Mary Jo Weavers. We were just talking to Eric Francis of PlanetWaves.net and Christine Payne Towler, a Turo scholar and teacher of ancient history and astrology. Eric, if you could pick up where you left off, you were talking about Evangeline Adams and the impact she had on the profession of astrology.
2: Yeah, and on public curiosity, I mean, she gets the public curious about astrology on the mass market level, and she's, for example, responsible for inventions like the um, the forty page report, um, which uh, you know, like the, the you know, you put your date birth data in, and you spend you know whatever fifty dollars, and, and they send you back this supposedly thorough reading. Adams invents that prior to computers, um, where. You know, she would. You know, you'd send your data in, and your chart uh, would be cast, and somebody would say, "You have oh, you have Venus and Taurus." They'd take that page, and oh, you have you know Saturn in Sagittarius. So we'll take that page and assemble uh, these reports, which are basically kind of character analysis uh, and and personality studies. Uh, so this is now done by many different. You know, you can use solar fire to pull up this kind of information. Uh, and Eva- Evangeline comes up with this, has 25 secretaries working in a very busy office, uh, and is taking clients all you know day in, day out in, in her studio in Carnegie Hall. Very clever. Probably uh, there hasn't been a more clever astrologer since Evangeline Adams. Mm. So meanwhile, uh, this starts to proliferate in, in culture, and it starts to kind of morph with spiritual psychology. So then, you know, you have more serious writers uh, like Dane Rudyard who are laying down a deeper foundation. You have kind of spiritualist, psychological crossover people like the Reverend Dr. Mark Edmund Jones who's offering a, a kind of a morph between uh, astrology of spiritual evolution and growth and the astrology of character analysis. Uh, He invents the Sabian symbols, the first degree-by-degree symbol system of the modern world. And so by this time, the the astrology we're doing today uh, starts to take form. Only as this is happening, uh, books are getting cheaper to print and and more popular, and there's more bookstores, and uh, then the 60s happen. Uh, you know, astrology. I think was pretty quiet in the 1950s, uh, but then the 60s come with the, all of these um, retrievals, basically, cultural upheavals and and retrievals of ancient methods, and that uh, that begins what I call the groovy astrology phase, um, where astrology basically <laughs> is uh, a completely a pop art. Uh, a lot of these old books by you know Rudyard and and people like that are, are still. Uh, working around backs of used bookstores, uh, Rudyard is still alive in the 60s. He issues his version of the Sabian symbols, um, which I think is one of the great landmark books that kind of uh, gives astrology its postmodern foundation. It, it's uh, it's a beautiful document that integrates modern imagery uh, with traditional astrological knowledge, but also... Uh, is, I think, the the best humanistic work by Dane Rudyard, And so from that, that you can see there still is a serious vein left. It may be the best astrology book that came out during uh, the 1960s. And the popularity continues through the 1970s, and I think that the next major watershed moment is the discovery of Chiron. Uh, mm. Chiron is a minor planet in the uh, solar system beyond Saturn, so it, it never goes in. Uh, it never. Well, no, it does It does pierce Saturn's uh, orbit at a, for a certain number of years uh, during the perihelion, um, but it spends a good. most of its orbit, probably 35 years or so, uh, outside the realm of Saturn. So uh, Chiron is kind of commuting between the inner and the outer solar system. And when Chiron was discovered in 1977 by. Um, Dr. Charles Kowal, uh, a great discoverer uh, of, of many comets and asteroids, uh, he discovers a whole new class of planets. And this uh, is published in the New York Times. And so a lot of the astrologers who kind of come through the groovy astrology phase, and were I would say more of, of the truly psychologically oriented uh, astrologers, begin to pick up on Chiron, and there is this uh, phenomenon that happens of the immediate uh, mapping out of a new discovery. You know, with, up to that point, there have been a lot of discoveries, and the, the major discoveries, you know, in the late 18th century, Uranus is discovered in the mid-19th century. Neptune is discovered in the early 20th century. Pluto is discovered. But just to give you an idea, Pluto is discovered around 1930, and there's not a book... Uh, written in English uh, until uh, around 1985, comes the first book by Jeff Green comes out. So there was a very long delay in the uh, analysis and understanding of Pluto. There's one book in German, uh, Alistair Crowley, who was ghostwriting a lot for Evangeline Adams. He's talking about Pluto in his writing in the 1940s, uh, somewhat incredibly, in the in the book of Toth, one of the best. Uh, astrology and tarot books you'll ever read, Um, and he's talking about Pluto, Uh, but for the most part, Pluto is not really understood. By contrast, the first books about Chiron start coming out right around the time uh, that the first books around Pluto start coming out, so with Chiron, there's a very short delay. And my take on Chiron is that it is the focal point of astrology as a healing art, You know, rather than just as a spiritual tool or psychological analysis tool, astrologers start to take themselves seriously, at least a certain group of astrologers take themselves seriously as people who are uh, actively assisting others and who are kind of agents of healing as Chiron so often turns out to be in the chart. And so you have, you know, there's a lot of pop astrology going on, of course, all throughout this, but then my take on, on Chiron historically is that, though many astrologers today still don't use Chiron, that Chiron is a watershed, and the, the few astrologers who really took this seriously have had a kind of leading-from-behind type of effect, which um, focused many of the principles that contemporary astrologers use today, even if they don't use Chiron. Now, I can continue, but if you want to interject, I'm <laughs> happy to <laughs> pause for a second.
3: Okay. Well, well, one thought that I I have, Eric, listening to you is is uh, Chiron is about healing, and as astrologers, we do see our profession uh, as as a healing one However, it, it seems to me it, It's more of a psychological healing uh, Following what you were saying That astrology took more Of a psychological bent or flavor In recent times
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a long phase Of time where no doctor would render A diagnosis without casting uh, A chart mm-hmm. So uh, Astrology's got a long history uh, Through, you know the, I don't know what you'd call The, the time medieval times, I guess um, where horary astrology was used uh, constantly for diagnosis. Um, so yeah, right up the history. Renaissance,
4: the uh, Reformation, the Enlightenment. Yes, exactly. Yeah,
2: so that's an important part of its history. Um, w- when we talk about Chiron, I mean, there is um, it, it's psychological, but when you start to hear the scenarios that people go through under Chiron transits, uh, you you know, there's a lot in there. You know, there's often... Uh, the resolution of physical ailments and, that may emerge and not, uh, in, and then, you know, be addressed. Uh, you, you get a sense of the client's unfinished business. So Chiron really brings in uh, an integrative approach and is the influence in astrology that really points out that astrology is a holistic art. Uh, that it's on working as much for the body as for the mind and the soul. Mm-hmm. So, in, you know, Chiron was a physician, the first in Greek mythology, and taught medicine to the god of medicine, Asclepius, was his student. To give you some sense of the uh, pioneering nature of the, uh, the historical or mythical figure, Chiron, like, if the god of medicine was his student, that's pretty good.
3: It's interesting how in astrology we talk about cycles of time within greater cycles of time, and. Thinking about the, the ancient roots of astrology that Christine was talking about, we seem to have had a much more holistic view of the world and ourselves as part of it centuries ago. And with the onset of our mechanistic worldview, that kind of uh, fell apart and we changed and now we have Chiron kind of bringing us back into that holism again.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a great analysis, I would say. I mean, there, there was the, you know, what, what many have called the disenchantment of the world under, uh, un, under science, because everything had to be reduced to empiricism, and if it wasn't documented by empiricism, then it didn't exist, right? So this is not good for astrology, which is not really well documented by, you know, double-blind studies. It's not subject to them. Mm-hmm. And so astrology goes out the window when empiricism comes in, now, science is moving in a direction that is itself more holistic and recognizing that we live in a polyverse, not a universe, and that there's many dimensions, and that, and that time is not this absolute thing. You know, Einstein discovers that. And so there's gradually room being made for the astrological worldview, gradually. Um, but it's going to take some very competitioners to put forth ideas that people relate to Uh, The contribution I try to make is I try to have astrology be relevant and useful rather than abstract and theoretical.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Eric. And thank you, Christine. And I can't believe that we're already out of time on today's show. This conversation has been absolutely great. Um, I I would love to continue it again at a future time with both Eric Francis and Christine Payne-Towler. And many thanks to both of you for being our guests on today's show. You can read Eric's articles, view his videos, and listen to his FM program on planetwaves.net. And you can also contact him directly at efc at com for a reading. Christine Payne-Towler's website is com. To read her articles and astrological analysis, go to her blog site, com. Christine is also available for personal readings. Thank you listeners for joining us today. Please share your thoughts with us on Facebook at Astro Talk Radio. For all you professionals out there, you can link up with Janie and me on LinkedIn. And let's take our conversation over to Twitter with hashtag AstroTalkRadio. Please join us next week with our guest Hank Friedman when we discuss your chart, how it's created, and what it represents. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
4: Yeah, thank you.
1: Thank you for being a part of the show today. Please join Janie McCarthy and Mary Jo Weavers again next week for another edition of Astrology, The Theory of Everything. We're live every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America's 7th Wave Channel. May the stars be with you.